hello, everyone. Welcome to the Stairway to CEO podcast brought to you by Future Commerce. I'm your host, Lee Green, and it's my mission to bring you a real, honest, and unfiltered interview with top business leaders from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 24 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee Green, and today we've got an awesome show for you. Recently named one of Forbes 30 Under 30 and Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30, Crystal DeGroote is the co-founder of Your Super. Your Super was created when Crystal's boyfriend, Michael, was diagnosed with cancer at just 24 years old. Together with her nutritionist mom and aunt, she developed five superfood and two vegan protein mixes to help boost Michael's immunity following chemotherapy. Shortly after the mixes worked, the couple formed the company in Berlin, Germany, and quickly grew to shipping over a million products from their website with the direct-to-consumer first business model. In this episode, Crystal shares with us her entrepreneurial journey, her experience with raising over $17 million to date, and a new company policy she put in place to help support the women who work at her company. Tune in to hear all of this and more. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us an awesome review. We hope you enjoy this episode. Crystal, thank you so much for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about your story and building your super. I'm really excited to uh, hear about it. And thanks again. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to share some stories today. Awesome. So let's start from the very beginning. Where are you from and what was childhood like for you? Um, I'm from Holland, actually, originally, uh, or the Netherlands, whatever you want to call it. I... Um, my childhood was actually, it was pretty nice. I played a lot of tennis and um, from a really young age was just really, really a lot of tennis. So like from age 10, I think I played like 20 hours a week tennis. I come from like a big family. I'm the oldest of five. Um, my mom is a orthomolecular nutritionist and um, also just an awesome mom of five, to be honest. Like that's a five. Like a, wow. That's five a lot kids. of siblings. I know I have four young, I have two younger sisters, two younger brothers, and um, and then my dad's a pharmacist. So it's kind of funny because they're you know like very different views in a in a lot of ways. Where um, I mean, my mom wins the arguments, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and that's I think I mean my childhood really was it was nice. You know, like I had a lot of siblings, and I think that was really fun. I played a lot of tennis. I was school was pretty easy for me. Um, I was pretty disciplined. I don't even want to say disciplined actually, but I just like, it just always got done. Um, because my parents always told me, yeah, you're not allowed to play this much tennis if school is not good. So it was just like a given. And <laughs> so then, you're like, I better finish my homework or no tennis. Yikes. Can't, can't risk that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was not always on time, but it was more when it really came down to it. Right. When the tests, you know, like I was really good and just like crunching one day before just getting it done. <laughs> and yeah. Procrastination. Yeah. It always worked. And 
And then, I mean, it was really, yeah, eat, sleep, repeat. Like it was a very just like routine, heavy childhood, I would say. I was definitely not the social, per- like I was pretty disciplined actually from a young age. I remember even when I was 11, 12. Um, there will be school parties. I was like, no, I cannot go. I have tennis practice and like, this is not important. So I was like very set on my goal. And um, when I was younger, I wanted to be number one in the world uh, playing in tennis. tennis. Yeah. Oh, wow. So you wanted to go pro as a kid. Yeah. I did then I think around like 15, 16, that started to fade a little. Um, but I did go to um, like with when I was 17, I actually went to the U.S. I uh, got a tennis scholarship. And, um, that's something you don't have in Europe. So in Europe, hmm. when you finish high school, you either go to university or you go pro a university. There's no, there's nothing sports related to it. You just study and study and that's, that's it. And everything social, if you want to play sports, it's just like, it's completely separated. Um, that's by the way, the same in high school, it's completely separated. So it was for me, it was really fun to still study, but then to be part of a team. And just be able to play tennis every day. And I went to Modesta State University in Georgia. So I had like nice weather. And this is a small college town to, I mean, 17 years old, uh, 17 years old to just like grow up and learn, you know, how to pay rent and these kind of things. Wow. So yeah. And was that your first time in the States? No, I actually was, I think I was like 11 or 12 uh, when I was in the States for the first time. But the decision, I remember it was actually in, when I was like 16, I was in New York and there was this distinct moment where I was sitting in a cab and I like looked up to the sky. I don't even know what I was, but I, I remember this thought popped up in my head. And I was like, I'm going to study in the US. And that's like, I just kind of scraped out for the car. And I, I was there with my mom and my two sisters and they were like, okay, I guess Crystal's going to study in the US. <laughs> and I was decided at that moment and like, that was it. So it's, it's, uh, that's yeah, funny. Cause the US like, is uh, so big. So how, so, and being in New York too, it's so different from so, most so of different. the US. Yeah, <laughs> no, so was, when you got to Georgia, were you like, wait a minute, did I make a mistake? Are we in the US right now? I well, thought that was I, yeah, no, you're totally right. I actually was in, um, I was first half year in West Palm Beach. And I think I, with my childhood, when I was 11 and 12, I went several times, I went to Florida. So I think that was something that felt a little bit more familiar. And, um, but then I had a friend who was studying in Valdosta. So after one semester, I actually transferred them to Valdosta State. And it's a small school, but they're, they're division two, um, but they were always going to nationals. So the tennis team was just really, really good. Um, mm. I went to nationals. I was we were semifinals one time. And so the experience there just from even from a sports perspective was just a lot of fun. Yeah. So when you were there in college, did you um, do any kind of internships or what were some of the first jobs that you had? I, so because I was from Holland and I had a student visa, I couldn't mm-hmm. work in the U.S. Um, but what I did is my, because the, the breaks, in, for, especially in the U.S. school system, the, the summer breaks are so long. So I would go home <laughs> in the summer and it was like free month and everyone else was still studying or, I mean, they just didn't really care that I was back. So I was like, oh, I got to do, so I have to do something. So I, I actually did a couple of things. I think the first thing I did was, an internship at, um, my uncle has a company and I didn't like, he kind of sells, I don't even know how to describe it, but like little scooter mobiles for like old people and everything. And it was a lot, um, it's subsidized also by, um, city councils. 
So I had to actually call all the city, but every city, city council in Holland, they all had slightly different rules and I needed to call them up to check what the rules were. And I did this whole market research thing. Um, and it was the most random project I think I, I got. I was just sitting out in a room and it's like, oh yeah, just figure it out. So at the end of the project, I just had this really like very organized folder. And I was like, oh, this is actually very great. Like, I don't think he expected anything from it. That was one of the first things I did. But then from there, uh, other summers, I, I think one summer I had just a job in like a, a clothing store. Another summer, I then actually did um, an internship at Deloitte in like the M&A department. And what like is I think important to note in Holland, people don't really do internships during their bachelor program. Mm. You don't really necessarily have the time for that. And um, so even me showing up at Deloitte, I was like 20 years old <laughs> and like their internships, like their interns, they're normally like 24, 25. And wow. like, I was like showed up there and I was like, Hey, yeah, I'm studying finance accounting. And you know, I'm just, I'm here for free month. And uh, like, I don't think anyone wanted to give me anything because they're like, okay, we just like, I don't know where this young person is here and just blonde girls. It's like, whatever. And then one person gave me something and it was, I think it was the most ridiculous thing. It was so easy. And uh, just like some email and I don't even know what it was anymore. So did you just and, walk in or like, how did you get in there? Um, I, I think it was like through my mom, she had a tennis friend and then the tennis friend worked in a other, like in the other department. And then he got me the interview. Mm. Um, and then I needed to go for the regular interview process. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I think they, I think they were just kind of surprised that someone that young anyways, like wants to do the internship. So I don't know. I don't know what's going through yeah. their mind. I have no idea. So how uh, was it your experience? I thought it was, well, there were a lot of guys. I think that was number one. Right. <laughs> I think the whole department, there were maybe two females. That was it. And then I think the other piece is that I really realized that I didn't like it. I was like, this is so boring. You're sitting on the same chair every day. You look out of the same window and you just, you get a little assignment and you have to do it and give it back. And I was just like, is like, I really remember this moment. I was like, is this life? And then I, I think from there on, I was like, I was like, oh, I'm so happy I did this because I was studying finance and accounting just because numbers just came very natural to me. And I thought it was, it was easy. It was logical. So I was like, oh, this is great. Mm -hmm. But then actually applying it to something real life, it's like, oh, this is very boring. So it's, I think from there, I, I realized, so in, I did a master still after my bachelor. So after I finished in the U.S., actually, um, I traveled for a while in Asia. And then I decided to do a master's in management in London. And I, I wanted to do, like, I kind of wanted to, like, generalize where finance and accounting was, like, very specific and management seemed, like, vague enough that it, like you could just kind of do everything again. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, I don't feel like I've learned anything crazy specific there. I did a minor in entrepreneurship actually. Um, but it was the interesting thing was that in my program, there were about like a hundred people. And I think there were like, they were just all from different countries. There were only two people from the UK. So the one piece I really learned there was just, you were always put into group projects, six, seven people, and you were all from different cultures. So with people from India, then someone from Holland, someone from Sweden, someone from Russia, and then to learn how to work, and someone from the US, and then just like to learn how to work together while all our communication styles were different. Um, that was really interesting. And I think the, 
the one most interesting with this is exercise on listening. And they actually recorded us and we had to, as a group, get something done, but they recorded and you had to watch it back afterwards. And you just re- like the best thing I learned there is like, everyone is so busy to think about what they're going to say that they're not even listening to each other. Right. And I was like, oh, listening is not just like not talking. Listening is actually listening. So I was like, so was you guys learning. were recorded and then you all had to watch the recording of yourselves yeah. communicating to each other. Yeah, we had to figure out how to build with like a limited set of resources as many little paper houses. It was like the most ridiculous thing, but you like, you had to communicate, you had to come up with a plan for like 10 minutes and 10 minutes to execute. Mm-hmm. And they recorded everything. And just like some people just didn't want to be part of the discussion. They started to randomly start to like cut tape and they were just like doing their own thing and just started to do something. And then the next person was only, they said something. And then the other person answered, but they were saying something completely different. And you don't even realize that being in a conversation because I was so busy with my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, so interesting that especially in a situation where you're trying to achieve something is that people get so caught up with themselves. Right. And I think it was a huge, like, I always come back to that where I'm like, I really learned that listening is really like you have to actively listen to actually hear something. Hey, real quick, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Future Commerce Insiders. Insiders is a weekly newsletter that brings you the information you need at the intersection of technology, entrepreneurship, and commerce. If you're a tech founder or an operator at an e-commerce brand, Insiders is purpose-built just for you. Commerce connects all of us, and entrepreneurship gives anyone the opportunity for economic advancement. So, commerce entrepreneurship has the ability to change the world. Want to join us? Do it right now at futurecommerce.fm. That's futurecommerce.fm. So do you like record meetings with your team so you guys can learn how you're communicating? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. Maybe I should. That's a good I idea. think it's a great <laughs> idea, actually. I think there's so much that we can all learn about ourselves and communication sure. through watching ourselves on video because you see all the little nuances we do with our hands or our mouths or, you know, we all have these nervous twitches or... I just think it's fascinating. I think there's a lot of things that we can uh, learn from seeing ourselves in those environments. It's true. It's really true. I had to do it um, last year. I worked with a business coach and I actually had to record some meetings and then like you would like watch them back and especially like feedback sessions where he then also like he wasn't there, but he would like watch it back and actually get feedback on it. And I think that was that was really interesting where Mm -hmm. it's just like that outside perspective and like taking a look of like, oh, how do I actually really say what I want to say? How do I come across? There's just so much to learn from that. (laughs) How you think you're coming across might be a little different than how you actually do come across the people. Yeah, that's awesome. So what happened after uh, business school? You got your, what, MBA or? Masters, uh, so MSc and... Mm. um, from which I know is it's a little bit different in the US and in Europe everyone gets somehow a bachelor and a master it seems to be like it's kind of expected before you start working and don't ask me why it's it's just different and then I um what actually happened during my bachelor is um that was the last or master sorry the last half year of my master's um that was the time actually Michael was sick and that's when did you guys meet we met in college. So we met, um, yeah, we met a in long London? time ago. 
No, so that was in the U.S. Um, he was oh. also on the ten- he was on the tennis team. All right, as well on a guy's team. Nice. And yeah, we met. I was like 18 years old, and then like a year later or something, we were together. But I was like kind of from the first moment, I was just like, I was like, hey there. And he was like, hey there. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. So we, I mean, we lived. Um, he finished in the U.S. a little bit earlier, so we were. For quite a while, we're like long distance. And then he was, um, he was actually finishing up his master's in India and I was in London. And then he finished up his master's and then he actually um, discovered he had cancer. He has, he had mm. uh, a cancer. And that, yeah, I was like kind of mid through my master's. So I was just, he went, then went home. He was with his parents. So I was traveling between London and uh, a small town in Aachen. It's Aachen, a small city in not even city, a small town in Germany. Um, he had surgery, he went through chemo. And I think it was just really a really interesting period where it was, I mean, it was definitely not a good period. Like my mom had cancer when I was like 12, 13. So for me, it was like, I really felt like as I kind of relived almost that experience again, um, obviously like it was super, super tough for him. Like I cannot even, you know, imagine that, but I think for me, besides just trying to support him and just, you know, like survival mode, doing what you need to do, I was kind of, yeah, processing that piece of my mom as well. Just like, Oh, this is the second time that the closest person in my life is like going through mm. this experience. And I'm only, you know, like 21 yeah. years old or 20, I don't, 22 years old or something. And so that was, that was tough. Um, and I remember during that period, I watched the movie Forks Over Knives. And that was like, that changed everything. I was like, day after I was plant-based. And what you learn in that movie is that you can actually, you know, epigenetics basically is that you can turn on and off cancer genes by what you're actually eating. And I was mm-hmm. just, I was like, oh, well, <laughs> cancer is clearly a problem. Wow. <laughs> so if I can actually control some of those, you know, things by what I'm eating. And I was always health conscious. It was a huge topic in my life. I had eczema when I was young. And that was just really, um, yeah, like a, like really a turning moment where I was like, okay, I'm plant-based right now. Um, Michael wasn't right away, but I, I was always like, I, during his chemo, it's, I think, and it's for a lot of people this way it's hard to, you're in a survival mode and you don't want to hear everything you need to do. And I think really the moment for him when his chemo finished, and it's interesting because you finish your chemo and you're, um, you know, the doctors say you're healed now. You're anything but healthy, right? right. You, he didn't look healthy. He didn't have any energy. His immunity was down. Like he was just not himself. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment where I was like, Hey, do you maybe want to do a detox? <laughs> and I have like I had this cabinet full of superfoods, and I was like, "So, look, I can you know we can use this and this." And he was like, "I dragged him to Whole Foods, and I was like, you need spirulina, you need wheatgrass, you need you know like maca, like we're just like grabbing all these things." And he was like, "This is too expensive. This is very complicated." And the answer is no. And I was like, okay, I got it. And then we went home and I had this, you know, I had this cabinet full and I had an empty jar and I just poured a bunch of green things, uh, like Coretta, Spiridina, everything in a jar. And it's like, you know what, whatever you do, just like, just take this every day. Like, just don't worry about it. Like, and it's just like simplifying it for him basically. Mm. Um, and then he did the detox and he started using the mixes. And for him, it was just such an aha moment when he started to feel better. 
And was he mixing them like in a smoothie or how was this prepared? Because it sounds like a lot of green powder probably it doesn't was. taste good. So how did you get him to eat it every day? He, he mostly put it, put it in a smoothie. So he started baking smoothies um, or juice. Sometimes it was like juicing different things, stirring it in a juice. And yeah, I, I'm sure my first mixture didn't taste that good. I think I was not very deliberate. It was just like, okay, you need a lot of this and a lot of this. It's just like, there you go. <laughs> it's a little similar to our super green. I think our super green is a little bit more sophisticated because we added baobab and baobab is very sour. So it balances the, the taste of the greens a little bit more. But yeah, and... But it was really this this moment for him where then, you know, as he comes from more, you know, meat-heavy background, also just like very traditional germ eating, he yeah. was like, oh, just, I actually feel better. I actually have more energy. And it was just this moment. And then he started to like dig deeper because he was like, what are the superfoods? Like, like all this, you know, new stuff. And then here he is, oh, superfoods are actually nothing new. A lot of these ingredients have been used for centuries in like, you know, more native um, communities. And that was also where we then kind of got together and um, said, well, there are a lot more Michaels in this world, right? There are a lot more people where all this fancy superfood names, or it's not even fancy, but just like complicated names that they don't understand it and they don't right. have the money to buy everything loose and they don't know what to mix together. They don't know what they need. Mm -hmm. And if you then look at the stats that nine out of 10 people don't eat enough fruit and vegetables, then you're like, oh, there, there might be something here. Yeah. And even just looking on the shelves, you look at the word wheatgrass or spirulina and you're like, I can barely pronounce it. And I don't know what it is, but I don't need grass. You know, like you don't even know if it's edible and you don't yeah. understand the benefits. And I think there's probably a lot of, you know, laws preventing putting any type of claims on benefits for stuff like that. So then you're really lost unless you try to look things up and then you've got, I don't know. I think, it, yeah, you're right. It's just a kind of a complicated situation and no one eats enough vegetables. Everyone's really busy talking about like protein and, and calcium, I guess, but no one's really talking about the green vegetables they're supposed to be eating every day. Yeah. And it's also, there's this focus on in our society, really on macronutrients instead of micronutrients, where I really believe if you actually eat enough micronutrients, that's when you're not hungry anymore. And that's when you're really nourishing yourself and start to feel good. And it's not just about the micronutrients. I'm not to say that they don't have any value. Obviously they do, but that doesn't have to be our obsession. And so uh, for the non-nutritionists out there that don't know yeah. what you're talking about in terms of the difference between micro and macro, can you go into yeah. that a little? Yeah, of course. Um, so macronutrients is basically uh, proteins, fats, carbs, where most people, you know, when you have the packaging, everyone turns it around and looks at this nutritional table and it's like, how much of this, how much of this, how much protein? Mm -hmm. And the piece that I'm interested in, first of all, is not the nutritional table. It's the ingredients list. That's always my number one tip for anyone who wants to be healthier. Read the ingredients list versus nutritional table. Do Be actually curious what ingredients are in your food and what you're putting into your body. I think that's like a first good step. And if you don't know what something is, like start to Google it and you will find out some really fascinating things. And... Just to come back to the micronutrients, micronutrients are vitamins, there are minerals, antioxidants, the enzymes, phytonutrients, and there is a lot of, um, there are still a lot more things that we, you know, science and even discover yet. Um, they call, sometimes they call it even cofactors in food, but I, I won't go there, but it's, it's really, um, it's really important for our health to, you know, make sure we get, get enough of those. Mm -hmm. And you can eat your protein bar every morning and it might have, you know, maybe zero car, you know, zero carbs and enough protein, but like, what are you actually nutrition wise? Like, what are you actually getting from micronutrients? It's a really important question to ask yourself.
Definitely. And when, so it's from the day he kind of finished the chemo and was trying your new mixture, experimental, like green powder mix yeah. smoothies, how many days did it take for him to kind of realize or feel a little different and better? So we did like a, I got him to commit to a three day detox and it's like, we have now a five day detox. So it's very, it's very similar to that where it's just, it's just plant-based eating. It's a lot of smoothies just, and it's not a lot of people think detox means just not eating. Yeah. That's not what I mean with a detox and detox is really how I look at it. It's overloading your system with the good stuff. So a lot of fruit and vegetables. So we really have, you know, it's the smoothies, it's plant-based salads, it's, you know, incorporating the superfoods in there, just like a lot of that. It's not about like starving yourself at all. And you cut out all the bad stuff. So, you know, no processed sugar, no alcohol, no caffeine, you know, coffee. Um, And it's really interesting how fast your body can actually start to feel better. And that's, I mean, that was very similar for him where, you know, after free, he, he extended it. So like after on day three you already feel a difference but especially if you do it like five days you're just like wow i have clarity i have energy and for him it was such a moment of like oh like food has such so much influence on how you know on how i feel on a daily basis yeah and it's pretty remarkable if you can experience that because i always people ask me right like oh why would i why would i use superfoods like i'm healthy and what i always like to say is like well your baseline is like I know no one gets in my hands right now, but your baseline is at a certain level. And who says that your baseline could not just be like 10 levels higher? You just, mm-hmm. you just don't know and you haven't experienced it, right? right? Maybe you can have more energy. Maybe you can have like more mental clarity and maybe just like feel better on a daily basis. And I think that's the interesting piece with food. And once you let someone experience that, like that there is this other level of just like how nice you can feel. And it's like, oh, I've been missing out here. So I think that was, yeah. that's uh, that's something I'm really, really excited about. So how did this go from, you know, something that could help Michael? You are just saying there's probably other Michaels out there that may be experiencing the same thing. So how did it go from, you know, this thing that was specific to help, you know, your boyfriend at the time to yeah. a business? Yeah, so I, I mean, I was basically during, you know, that was in the summer then I... I was right after business school. So first I was still busy. I was like, oh, I need to go do a consultancy job. Like if you come out of business school, right, you have two options. You have to go either to a bank or you have to do a consultancy job. So I actually had a whole bunch of interviews. Um, a lot of less rounds didn't work out. So I was like, oh, because I said, oh, if it's not the best one, I'm not going to go there. So then what I actually did instead, first I traveled for three months uh, together with Michael for Asia, which was nice. Then we came back, he started at Accenture. And while um, while he was doing that, I was kind of figuring out, okay, like what, what do I want to do? And I um, I started then in Amsterdam at a sustainability consultancy, as actually still as an internship, but it was something I was like, oh, okay. But while I was doing that, that's really actually when we started Your Super. So we both were still kind of, you know, still doing, you know, other stuff, but like Your Super is really where then the focus went to. And how that really came about, I think it was just, you know, like through that, you know, there was a little period in between, but just talking to people where I was always just, you know, the health nuts for my friends. So, you know, like always recommend, oh, you should do this, you should do this. And just realizing really like that they just had no clue. And I, you know, like even for myself, I started to, because I was spent based already for a while, I started to just 
already feel so much better and even feel the benefits myself. And it's like, just, you know, like this should be easier. More people should notice. And from there it's, um, I mean, how do you start a business? Like we bought a domain. <laughs> how did you land on the name? How did so you our land? Initial, yeah. Our initial name was your superfoods. And I, I mean, so we're very spontaneous people. I don't think there was like a whole month long process. It was just like, we sat on the table, we were brainstorming names and we just looked at some other companies. And like, I think there was like a, my something that was a period that everything was my, and we're like, okay, let's do your, <laughs> your superfoods. Um, which we over the years found out we couldn't actually trademark. And then we just lost the foods and we're like, you're super, this is great. This sounds so much better. Um, so very, uh, very spontaneous how that kind of came to, came to life. But then, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we started an e-com store and we didn't, we didn't really, um, have the, the exact, uh, mixes that. And that was really when I was sitting with my mom and with my aunt and just, you know, like, and I was already in London, even when I started using this, you know, all the superfoods myself, I would call them up. I'm like, so I have this like wheatgrass here. And like, I want to, you know, like similar to you said, like, what does it do? I would just like give them a call and just start asking questions. And if they, even if they didn't know, they would just like, you know, do the research and send me articles. I was always reading about it. Um, and that's when we, so when we launched, we, um, we, the first year that was sort of, was in like 2014, we, uh, we started selling, um, but we actually didn't have the products yet. So we, we, we said, and this is such a funny timeline. We didn't have, <laughs> we didn't have packaging yet. Um, we didn't actually have the raw ingredients yet, but the website was ready to go. So we started selling and we gave ourselves two weeks to figure out the products. And oh I was like, what? <laughs> yes. you guys were like trying to, you're selling product and you thought it would take two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> to get the product yeah. made and put in like yeah well, but how we did that happen? yeah so we mixed by hand and so basically oh, you're like so, we'll just do this and we'll mix this concoction in our kitchen and ship it out for a few months yeah, and see how exactly happens. and and that's honestly that's actually and this is the crazy part we've actually did this for um almost a year I was 23 and never had actually a real job. I had no idea what I was doing, <laughs> but I just started, we, we started to buy some, um, you know, order some superfoods initially from, you know, from wholesalers. I mean, we didn't know better from some wholesalers. We figured out this canister that would be, it does, it, now it looks a lot nicer. I did the design for the first one, but there was like basically this empty, uh, there were no, we printed our own labels at home and we just had this empty canisters. And we started to fill them up and we went the first year to a lot of different uh, kind of farmer's markets, but it was like, you know, the little conventions in Germany and Holland where every, like we would mix during the week, we'd sell them in the weekend. And that was like, kind of became our routine. Michael at some point, you know, quit his job, not because we were raking money, um, but there was somehow in our mind, there was so much to do. And then in 2015, in the summer of 2015, there was this moment of, um, this is not very scalable, uh, which was very true. And, <laughs> and honestly, also the sales online, they were just, it was so small. We didn't have any money. I mean, it was totally like bootstrapped. Um, we always, you know, like Michael's salary at the time was like the first little money where we could buy some of the ingredients from. And I had a little bit money saves from, um, you know, I don't know, maybe like 5,000 euros, maybe 10,000 euros. That was about it. Not a lot. And from there, um, yeah, we said, okay, this is not scalable. 
And then we raised a really small family friends round. We thought it was big. I think it was 50,000 euros. 50,000? <laughs> yeah. Like we're going to go all out and we're going to raise a huge round of 50,000 yeah. euros. But that's, I mean, we were just not in an environment where we were not surrounded by other entrepreneurs. And I think yeah. we're just like, we were young and we're just trying to figure it out. And yeah. We just didn't know, right? And like, you don't like, I think for, for us at that time, that was still like a good amount of money where you could do something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Quite quickly learned that was our first production run and that the money was gone. Uh, <laughs> and, um, but then, and that was an interesting moment from there. We, um, so we started in Amsterdam and we, we saw more traction in Germany. And if I said traction, there was just a bit more orders in Germany. So we actually moved then to Berlin. And besides just attraction. Berlin was also a bit more of a startup scene. So we, you know, we realized that like, Hey, we need to start surrounding ourselves with people or starting businesses where back in Amsterdam, there was just like, somehow there was not a lot happening. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure there was, we were just not connected to it and Berlin. Um, so we moved to Berlin and, um, yeah, that was then we were in the beginning still working from home and we, we had then our first production run. And from there, like, really slowly, I don't even want to say started to grow, but it started to grow a little bit. And we then raised in that springtime, um, our second round, which was actually with 500 startups. And I, I have a funny story there on how we met, how we actually met them. Yeah. How did that happen? We, so we just in the beginning said yes to everything. And, um, we, <laughs> We got called by the web summit. Somehow they, I don't even know how they found us. They found us, they emailed us and they're like, like they have really good, they have really good selling process because they make you feel like you're selected. So I was like, I think I know, would know by now, but back then I didn't know. Yeah, like, so oh my like, God, oh, they discovered us. Yeah, they selected us. And, and <laughs> it's only like, you know, it's only like, I don't know what it was, like 1,000 euros or something. It's like, we had, you know, we have to go there. Mm -hmm. So we did actually this crazy trip because we had another convention in Sweden before, which I still don't know what we were doing in Sweden in a convention because it totally didn't make any, any sense. But like, we always felt we had to say yes to everything. It was really fun. We couldn't, we didn't focus in the beginning at all. Um, huge lesson, focus. And yeah. everyone, <laughs> lesson everyone learned there. Have a little learned. more focus. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there is a balance, right? But I think in the beginning, it's also a beautiful process to be a little scattered to like mm -hmm. kind of see what sticks and then start to focus in on that and do more. So I guess that, you know, that was kind of what yeah. we had to learn. But we did, a, you know, we, went, we drove from Amsterdam to Sweden. Uh, did a convention there, left the car, flew from Sweden to Ireland, where that's where in Dublin, this was where the web summit was. And this is the funny part, the web summit, there are only tech companies there and they only have apps and every company has a digital product. And we stand there and we have our own little corner and we have a physical product and everyone stopped there and they're like, this is fascinating. How, how, <laughs> where I was with every app, I was like, like, how do you build an app? Like, I like tell me, right? Uh, long story short, we somehow went to a party and met one of the partners of five on the startups there. And um, he just was a health nut. So he loved the products. He just fell in love with the products. We followed up with him after when we were in Berlin. And um, I mean, 500 startups, just a huge, huge seed fund, right? And they, mm -hmm. um, just because he loved the products, they decided to invest. He just said, you need to find someone who matches it. Uh, which we, one of our earlier, um, 
uh, like friends and family matched it. And that's when we had our 250K little second round. So that was, um, nice. that was in, um, I think that was like 216, like spring, summer, 216. Um, so and- when did you realize that things were working? Like, did you have any metrics that you were using to measure success? I mean, because I feel like there's a, yeah. there seems to be like um what like two year maybe period here between 2014 and 2016 when you get the deal with 500 startups where yeah. things start to maybe start moving. But that two years that's a long time. I think a lot of founders might have thrown in the towel. What kept you guys going? Um, well, I guess our rev- like our revenue was our metric. I think for ecom, that's that's the metric. And honestly, I think our revenues were, there were probably like 20K a month for something. I, I, they were so low still. And they, so we start, we didn't start to scale and there's, we can go back to that and I can kind of walk you through the process, but we, we didn't start to scale actually um, when we decided to go to the US. So this is like 216 and 217, where we're just like working away but nothing really worked. One of the interesting things, what was really cool about 500 startups, we did, they called it a dojo. And it was a one month immersion. And that was in the fall of 2016, where we went to Kuala Lumpur with the team, which was two other people. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a month immersion to learn everything about e-com. And hmm. that was the first time where someone explained to me, this is how e-com works. This is a KPI gesture you need to have. This is how you run Facebook ads. Mm. This, you know, and a lot of things you hear, you try to figure out by yourself, but like just to just hear it comprehensive and like having, you know, going through the process, doing it and still having someone to ask questions was just so helpful. Yeah. And I wouldn't say like right out of that, you know, like finishing that up, it was like, oh, now we started to scale, but I did feel I had some tools in where I feel empowered of like, okay, now I actually know what buttons we need to, or, you know, what things we need to test in order to figure out how can we scale this further yeah. versus let's just try some random things like, and have no idea. So yeah. that was, that was a really, um, a great experience. And then in 2017, we, um, spring 2017, we, it was really rough. We kind of were slowly like start to run out of money. And because 250,000 sounds like a lot. And what I've learned that it's really, really not a lot. (laughs) (laughs) It goes really, really fast. And especially if you don't have a finance person, it's like, it's not great. Uh, Michael (laughs) was the finance person, I guess. But it's um, what we realized though, is that um, from the small sales we had, which was, I mean, it was a little bit more than the the year before, but not a lot. And, but 10% was from the US. And we Hmm. thought it was fascinating. We had an English website, but people had to order in euros. They, um, you know, they had to pay expensive shipping. And we're like, why are they ordering? Like, it was just such a, <laughs> like, we're like, don't Those they have crazy enough? Americans, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, don't they have enough over there? Like, I'm confused. <laughs> so we just started to call them up and we're like, hey, like, why are you ordering? And they were like, well, <laughs> did you make a mistake? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, honestly, we're like, we're just wondering why. Um, and I think the one piece that like, this was like in those years, what we actually, one of our first marketing tools, because we, you know, we, we didn't ever had a lot of money. So we did influencer marketing and back then influencer marketing was also still, uh, for free. I know it's different nowadays, but like it didn't, it was a lot of just to barter deals. And I think that kind of like expanded our footprint relatively fast. 
And then we just always, even when we're still mixing by ourselves, we always shipped everywhere. So we had worldwide shipping on a website always because we said, well, we just want to see who orders. And then mm-hmm. we go, so we know. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, we, we started. But when so you called see, these people, what'd they say? When you're like, so why did you order our product? What did they say? They're um, like, why are you calling me? <laughs> there were like three key things. It was one, our mixes that there were just, so our mixes have just five, six ingredients and there's nothing else added. No stevia, no fillers, no flavoring, nothing. The ingredients on the front are the same as on the back and that's it. So that was one that was really called out. Um, two, the way we source during that time, we, um, when we were mixing by hand, one of the things we learned is that wheatgrass can come from China or wheatgrass can also come, for example, from Germany. And because we were mixing by ourselves, we just would order both just to kind of, you know, compare, see and taste difference. And you just put them next to each other. One is light green. Um, the wheatgrass from China is like super light green, didn't smell like anything. And he had wheatgrass from Germany that actually smells like grass and like was green. And we're like, oh, interesting. This is only one tenth of the price. And this is actually, you know, like it's a lot more expensive, but this is actually something I would think would actually do something to my body. And it just mm-hmm. looked like how it was supposed to look. And that's done a very interesting moment, right? Because we were like, hmm, so what do we want to do now, right? Because a lot of people are like, oh, yes, think about your margin, business, right. business background. And we're like, well, we just want to create products that, um, because we know what's in there, right? We're mm-hmm. mixing, it, mixing it by ourselves. We were, you know, sourcing our own ingredients. We are like, well, actually, we want to use products that we want to, you know, even knowing what's in there, we want to use them every single day. So that was yeah. a very pivotal moment where we realized that the way your source is everything. So that was something else that I mentioned on the phone. And because what we then set out to build, and that's something I'm very, very passionate about nowadays, we call the transparent supply chain. And we don't just go nowadays to a co-man and um, say, this is our recipe. And then, you know, the co-manufacturer just sources everything. Like and a co-manufacturer will just source always the cheapest ingredients to get the biggest mark, like get the biggest yeah. margin. And a lot of comments just make money, you know, with the ingredients and not necessarily with the producing. So we actually have very specific partners in each country from the ingredients we source from. We are able to visit, um, the, you know, all the, I mean, not all the farms because they're like sometimes, for example, Guriana, we were just in Brazil in, um, during New Year, we were in Brazil. Guriana is like, a, if we work with a partner, they have 500 family farmers. So we cannot, I mean, we can, but in time-wise, we cannot visit 500 family farmers. But we, you know, we visit some of the families. We see, you know, how they grow the Guriana mm-hmm. um, with so much love and how they, you know, harvest everything. And um, so, yeah, that's something we're very passionate about and just really also realize that with the way we source, and especially now since we have been scaling, uh, you can have a massive positive impact in those communities by just yeah. like having partners with like, you know, actually real value. So that's, that's something that was different. And then the third thing was the, the giving back. So we teamed up and we still, we just started to expand now also um, different uh, charities, but we teamed up like then with Action Against Hunger. And um, the reason we did that because when we were really, really small, we realized that we couldn't control everything in the sourcing when we were tiny. So we said, well, if we cannot do everything in the sourcing right now and do it, you know, like give back at the source yet, then at least we want to give back after the purchase. So that's when we said, okay, for every mix we sell, we donate one life-saving food bar to malnourished children with action against hunger. And um, yeah, that's just been, yeah. And that were basically the three things that people mentioned. And we're like, oh, interesting. 
we're like, we should go to the US. And that was literally like our thought and we shared it with our investors and everyone was like, no, you're way too small. You first need to grow in Europe. You cannot just go to the US. It doesn't make any sense. And like, I mean, obviously we're running out of money, uh, but we were trying to fundraise and in, in Europe, nobody was interested in income. Nobody was interested in health and wellness. And we're just like, in our mind, just everyone just felt like they were just kind of thinking too small and everyone thought we were mm. just kind of like too positive and like, we're like, okay, we're just, we're just going to go to the US. And um, I then always joke, there was this one airline, sorry, there's so many stories. There was this one airline, Wow Air, and they're actually bankrupt nowadays, but they were still alive and float and flying when we were fundraising and you had the cheapest flights to US, like 200, 300 euros. So wow. they, they kind of enabled us to just like fly back and forth and U.S. investors uh, even thought we were like, you know, we were co-working in certain areas and yeah. uh, in LA and whatever. And that's, we, we didn't necessarily know anyone, but we just started to fly out and set up meetings, reach out to people on LinkedIn and just like started to slowly build our network. And 2017 was, a, I mean, we did a couple of pitch competition, but it was just a lot of flying back and forth just like kind of built, built that slowly up. And then. It took us nine months and then we actually did a like convertible round um, that we closed in or convertible note in December. Um, so that was like, a, that was a rough year. <laughs> and then you guys moved to the States for a little bit, right? You were based in LA for a little bit? Yeah. So then in when that convert, well, on that convertible note, the why we could even raise in the US is like, hey, we're, we're becoming a US company. We're launching in the US. We already sold a little bit in the U.S. We so we basically shipped just some. We had one little fulfillment center, uh, and we shipped some of our inventory there. So even during a pitching, we're selling in the U.S. Everything is set up. Yeah, um, it, it was kind of you know we were selling a little bit. <laughs> yeah, and it's yeah. I mean, it was just pure will, and I think um, I think anyone with I don't know, like I guess if you just with a like a rational mind. In 2017, we were definitely just uh, like, we were 100% out of cash and probably like most people would have just stopped at this point. And we just somehow just like pushed through and, and then officially launched in January, 2018 in the US. Um, we moved there around November, December to LA. And we, from there, just um, started to figure out how to then really scale in the US. And that took us another four months. And then somehow we started to learn a couple of creatives on social page where we're like, oh, this is actually working with some of these ads. We can actually start scaling, um, which was exciting. And I was like, I mean, this was after, you know, running, already doing, being in business for four and a half years. And we figured something out that worked. And we're like, oh, this is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so you've raised what you said, $17 million total. That's yeah. a lot of money. And it sounds like that's pretty recent because you're talking about yeah. 2018 and here it's 2020. Tell us about, you know, raising $17 million in your experience with fundraising. Yeah. So we, um, the convertible note was like, well, I think it was one and a half million. And then we, we did a round of 5 million in December, 2018. And then we just closed this year in November, 10 million. Um, and the last two rounds were led by Powerplant Ventures, which were, just, they are an amazing partner. Mm -hmm. um, they're all entrepreneurs. Uh, they're all plant-based. Um, 
which is just like, it's so fun to work with people with similar values. The, the process though was, was really long because even when we, when we started scaling, um, what you will quickly realize when you start scaling is that you need more inventory. Therefore you need more working capital. Nobody wants to give you any loan. So that basically means if once you start scaling, you need to start fundraising again, especially when you start to scale faster. And, um, the other, the other pieces there, we, so we, we had a lot of like, we were a lot out of stock. So it was just like, it was a very stressful period still when we started to scale, even though you're like, Oh, something works, everything is good. And then, you know, the new challenge and the new problems arise. And, um, yeah, then, I mean, it was in general fundraising for us, I think was, I think it was tricky. Like, you know, nobody really knew who we are, Mm -hmm. like this Europeans who like showed up and just are like, I guess, extremely passionate and very determined, but it was, um, I think, I mean, it was interesting process. A lot of it, like, um, Michael, me really kind of split that up where um we quite quickly realized and i guess it's the easy way it was just like for us it just worked better where first of all he's naturally he's like he's just very outgoing and it's like was for him easy but it's also it's just like guy to guy it just worked better we very quickly realized that so i was like okay you just focus on this i said i will make sure the company keeps growing while you you know like you're you're fundraising and so that was just like very um like a easy split. Um, I still, in the end, always met with the investors and it was always a prerequisite that, you know, I had to sign off on them and like actually mm-hmm. like them. Um, overall, I think because I always had him on my side, I don't, didn't have the worst experiences. The, the worst I've experienced is maybe that they just want to only ask him questions and hear him. And uh, even if I would then answer, they would just ask him again. So like there mm-hmm. has been some interesting things. Um, or you kind of feel that they think he's the business guy and I'm just like, the, I don't know, just the creative person who like does something, but he's (laughs) actually running the business or something. And I'm just like, no, it's kind of the (laughs) opposite. Maybe (laughs) I'm like, we work together, but it was just like, it's really interesting where you sometimes just kind of feel it in the way they react to it. I was just, you just, I don't know. I think you just kind of have to let it go and let it go, but also just listen to your feeling and then stay true and just not work with them. I think when mm-hmm. you, when you feel that it's just like, no, just we, and it's hard, right? Yeah. In moments when you really need money mm-hmm. to then stick with your values. And, um, even during that round, we, we, I mean, we really in like towards end of that year when we were scaling, scaling, or like we really needed, you know, money. And we, we got like a le- an offer letter for someone else, more like a financial investor and, it just didn't feel right, but we were, we were honestly considerate because we were like, well, it's, yeah. it's this or nothing. Right. Right. And then somehow, I don't know, you know, you keep pushing, pushing, and then magically he bumps into power plant again. And then suddenly it went through and it's timing. Also it's sometimes fundraising and finding the right partner. It's timing. Do they have money? They need to invest, you know, like it's, yeah, it's a very just, it's a very timing, interesting process. It sounds like timing worked out and you were able to tell the one person that you guys weren't really feeling so great about giving them a hard no. Yeah. So we, uh, <laughs> that's that great. Was, no, that was great. Like, and, sorry, and then, the round closed early. For, I mean, we're yeah. just like oversubscribed now. Um, <laughs> sorry, not sorry. Yeah. See you later. <laughs> yeah. No, and that's interesting once you have, and that's the other piece, once you have a lead investor, mm-hmm. the rest just like, you know, like it just happens then. And that's, yeah. I think that's a big learning too. It's just, you have to get a good lead investor in and then you don't have to worry so much about the rest of the rounds. It just always works itself out. 
Yep. So as you know, being a founder involves an incredible amount of persistence. Um, mm. What's a routine or, you know, activity or thought process that you have that keeps you motivated and going every day? Uh, morning routine is everything for me. So <laughs> I, um, I love like just waking up and um, first I always drink water. Like that's just the first thing I do. And then it's not like a hardcore routine, but it's, I always move my body. So I try to listen to it. Um, I have had periods where I always felt like I need to do, I need to run or I need to do this. And I've learned to listen more. So on days where I feel like I'm overworking myself and it's too much, I don't want to just like throw another hit at it. Right. Just like, or another run and just like overheat, like, or just like overdo myself even more. It's like, Oh, let's do yin. Let's mm -hmm. do you know, let's just like go for a walk. Let's do something that's actually like just calming. Um, and some days where I'm like, oh, I feel great. I slept good. And it's like, okay, let's do a hit or let's do Pilates. So it's just like whatever, you know, feels right. Um, take some time to meditate, 10, 15 minutes. Um, sometimes it's a Wim Hof. It's like, again, I try to like throw in a little bit of variety. I'm not very good with every day exactly the same, but that's, that's pretty consistent. And then, um, and then I just make a really big smoothie and drink more water. <laughs> <laughs> and use all the your super mixes in there. I probably throw like four or five in my in my smoothie, and it's just like this gigantic smoothie. And that's I mean that's how I start my day every single day. That's awesome. So, what's the biggest thing you've learned about becoming a leader and a founder? I I think I'm still learning. We're now like um, even this year we the team crew quite a lot. We're now like 65 people or something with still an LA office as well as a, a partially also still Berlin office. So we're actually still active in both markets. And um, honestly, I think I, I'm still learning so much, but I think the, for me, really big lessons have been is um, there's so many. <laughs> there's so many. <laughs> I think, I mean, honestly, I think a really big one is just trusting yourself. Mm. And just, I just really trusting my gut instinct. I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned. I, I think I, I think that was at some point it wasn't. And I think over just certain things, even if you think about simple things or not simple things, but like hiring where on paper and rational, like this person is the perfect person, but like something feels off. And I've learned over time, over time, when something feels off, there is always something off. Hmm. And it's just really learning to trust my gut instinct more. And I, I would even say that Michael and me both nowadays still, and I sometimes feel more than other founders, but we really like to just make decisions based also on feeling. Um, we start to back them up with data and, you know, like whatever is needed, but it's just really also like, okay, like what, what feels right. And even if I think about like going to the U S rational wise, it didn't make sense, but it felt right. Um, so that's a really important, really important piece for me. Nice. Listening to your gut or intuition. Um, what are some limiting beliefs you had to overcome to get to where you are today? We all have, you know, those doubts or, you know, limiting yeah. thoughts early on. What were some of those? Um, isn't it interesting how our brain forgets all the bad stuff? I know. <laughs> it's in the forget box buried in the back. <laughs> yeah. I really, really, I think by the way, as a founder, 
being good and forgetting all the things that are hard and all the things that are like not fun. Um, I think is a great skill to have. I'm it really, is. Really good at this. I wish I had that skill. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure you do. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't consider starting something else. That's that's that's. that's I think true. it's all this true. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's. I actually think it was for us to really believe the the size of business we could really build, um, and I think that started to change as we started to change environments. So I remember, you know. In, in Europe, there are a lot, you know, there are not as many like bigger businesses. I think that that was very different, right? Where we came to LA and where in our minds, a $5 million business was still um, big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, but then you're kind of surrounded by all, you know, by investors and all these people and everyone is just like, and you hear the only thing we heard around us is like, everyone can do 5 million. Doesn't mean anything. And we're like... <laughs> Okay, got got it. You know, right. I was like, so you know, I know you hear all the people doing twenty or in higher and higher, and it's just like what was interesting is if you started to meet those people who are doing those things, and we're like, oh, like well, if they can do it, then we can probably figure it out too. And I think that that was just this really this really big thing where you start to realize that it's very normal people that are scaling businesses and there's not like what there's not one way to do it there's not like this this secret sauce i think there's so often like people are like how did you do it how did you and i'm like i don't know i just tried a whole bunch of things and i made like even more mistakes and i always joke that your super is built on mistakes but that's how you uncover things and then you know you call up customers and you try to actually solve a problem for them and just like build something that is really meaningful in their lives and um, I still do two customer calls every week because I want to stay connected with them. And that's why we do what we do. And I think maybe that's the, maybe the secret sauce is actually knowing your why, like mm-hmm. why are you, why are you actually getting out of bed? And like, why does it actually matter what you're doing? What's your why? Um, so our core mission is to improve people's health with the power of super plans. And that's, I think it's for very obvious reasons, but we, we live this lifestyle ourselves. Um, Michael has been through it. I, um, for me, it was using superfoods and doing detoxes and plant-based eating. And I healed my eczema that I had for 25 years was gone after two years. It was a period, it was a long period, but you know, it's, it's healed. And it's just, we've experienced what, what food can do. And I, I know, you know, I might not turn, and that's also not my goal is to turn everyone plant-based, but like what I do know is that if you eat more fruit and vegetables, you're going to feel better on a day-to-day basis. And superfoods are a very convenient way of just getting more of that into your body. And they happen to be some pretty nutrient-dense, powerful, you know, fruits and veggies. And they're very easy to incorporate. It's one spoon here, one spoon there. It can be in a smoothie, it can be in oatmeal, it can be in anything you're eating. And it's our mission to just start educating people to make it easier for them, to inspire them and to just lead by example. And um, what gets me out of bed is sometimes when I'm really tired, I just open our Slack channel. We have this one channel, it's customer feedback and it's just reading their stories or, you know, it's the customer calls. And I'm like, that's why we do it. Yeah. That keeps you going for sure. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, what kind of qualities or characteristics do you think make up a, a strong entrepreneur? Well, I think there are a lot of, even an entrepreneur, I think there are a lot of different entrepreneurs and everyone, you know, does it their way. But I think for me, 
the big thing was just being able to make very quick decisions. I think it's a really, really important piece. I, um, I always like to ask myself of like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I think there's this really interesting concept, right? Where even decisions and even someone else told me, and I love actually this anecdote. This is like a two-door decision or a one-door decision where what that basically means is like, if you make that decision, like you're going through the door, but is there still another door out? Like, can you always, can you reverse it? And, and, or is it really a one door decision once you've decided like there's no way back? And I think that's really interesting. And it's also just like, even when we started the business, it's like a lot of people are like, oh, like, how did you do that? I'm like, I, I just asked myself, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I was like, well, I'm 23, almost during, during, I was almost 20, 24 when we started. And I was like, I have not really a great income anyways. I, you know, like, <laughs> I don't have a family, I don't have a house. Uh, so the worst thing that could happen is that I have to live with my parents and I have to find a job. And I'm like, that's not bad at all. So I was like, this is great. <laughs> yeah, let's try this out. So <laughs> see what I, but I think that's true for so many situations in life where we just like create this irrational fear sometimes. And even, you know, for an entrepreneur, it's like you have to make so many decisions every single day. Mm-hmm. And I think the more you build up that skill of just being able to just decide quick, even when you don't have all the information, but like trust your instinct or just like still look at the information you have and just being able to move forward. And maybe you make mistakes, but you iterate again. I think that's, I think it's super important. So this two door, one door decision thing, go over that again. That's super interesting. I haven't heard that before. So you're saying yeah, one door is you go through the door and there's no turning back. There's no other door to leave the situation, yeah. but the two door is there's an exit door essentially like an entrance and an exit. So is, is there like, what's the thought between the two? Is it like wrong to go down the the one door decision path? It's not necessarily wrong. Right. But what you will find once you start using an anecdote is that almost every decision you make is a two door. Right. Right. So I'm like that's... trying to think what, what decision <laughs> would be the one door. Right. But that makes Unless you you're realize... jumping off a bridge. I don't know. Could exactly. <laughs> and that makes you realize that most decisions you make, like there's always like you can always like kind of reverse back out of them, right? And that's I think mm. that's that's interesting where we often see decisions as the ultimate. But yeah. They're they often are not. Yeah. And another door could open. You might not even have to go through the exit door. Yes, there might totally be, right. it might be a three door. <laughs> <laughs> you're totally right. I love, I love it. We're just expand, like we just we're just gonna come up with here. our own theories here. <laughs> Before you know, it will be like the five door theory. Um, anyways, um, I want to talk to you about company culture. Um, yes. You have something really cool that you described um, called Moon Days, I think. So I would love to learn what have you done differently with your uh, company culture and what is it and what impact has it had on your business? Yeah. So, I mean, culture, we can probably have a whole other episode about, but <laughs> I will definitely dial in in the moon balance day. So something that I started to realize, I, for some reason, I always get my periods at the worst possible days. I will always have an important meeting or I have to fly somewhere. I have like a meeting in New York, you know, whatever it was, it was on the worst timing possible and I would be, I was just sitting in a board meeting at some point and I was just like, I had cramps and it just really didn't feel good. And I was just like, just had to show up. Like, and we just, it just made me realize as women, first of all, we're like, you just don't talk about it. 
like you don't step in a board meeting and you're just like, oh, sorry, guys, I'm just kind of hanging in there. Um, I'm not feeling great if my energy is low because I have my period. I'm like, why? First of all, why is that not happening? And then I just kind of came to this realization where I was like, the workplace is designed by men for men. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this needs to change. This is like, this yeah. is not cool. We're 80% women company. And I just felt like for the last, you know, year, this was this year. So I mean, for the last five years, like I've heard sometimes like there were a couple people comfortable more in Europe actually talking about it. And, but in general, a lot of people just never really said anything. And I was just fascinating. I was like, I'm pretty sure that over 50% of women are experiencing, you know, PMS or, you know, like they're just not feeling their best. And, and so, yeah, came up with this idea of a moon balance day. So basically every female identifying employee has every month one moon balance day. And it's a day where I like to describe it. You can, you do what you can that can mean nothing that can mean you just want to hang on the couch. So I actually had my moon balance day today and I, I did, I canceled a couple of meetings. I took some of my meetings just hanging on the couch where normally I would just sit straight on a chair and I'm like, I'm there. And I was just like, Hey, I'm here, but I'm like, I'm like 75% here, you know? And right. I think being able to, you know, create a culture where you can actually share it where there's empathy towards it. So yes, I can show up, but like I might be a little bit more calmer and not as outgoing as I normally am. And um, yeah, that's that's what we're trying to create. And I think it's um, it's interesting. It's interesting. You know, we've been talking to press a lot of, even in like, you know, different outlets, they don't want to talk about it. And it's just like, as I started to like really wanted to just raise awareness and just like, it's not even that everyone needs to have a moon balance day, but it's like, let's just, at least normalize the conversation and that it's okay to say like, Hey, I'm, I'm not feeling my best today. You know, like I'm having a moon day and you know, I just, that everyone knows. Yeah. I think that should just be a given. And is it like specific for like periods or is it, I'm just not feeling myself in general? It's, yeah. It's really for your period. Take so it's, mm. Yeah. So it's, I mean, I'm not going to check if they have a period. I wonder how comfortable actually is your team kind of saying, Oh, I've got my period. So I'm going to uh, take a moon day today. I mean, are they vocal? Are they vocalizing this or? So it's in a, they can, they can, first of all, it always will start with me. Right. So it's like me actually doing that. So even on me today, I'm in my Slack check-in. I was just like, Hey, I'm having a moon day. I'm not feeling my best. And I think that's, I think that's number one. Um, then it was when we announced the policy, it was just opening up the conversation. And it's interesting, if you say, right? Some people are very comfortable talking about it. And it's not just like women, men, right? It's even women sometimes not comfortable. Yeah. It's like just trying to start to normalize it. Um, but then also, you know, with, you know, with the 20% men we have, like to start normalizing it for them too. And it's, if you think about it, isn't it crazy that it's not normal to talk about? It's like, this yeah. is where li- life is created from. And we're not able to have a conversation about it. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's really awkward for a lot of people. It's kind of this like hidden thing that like no one wants to talk about. And it's it's almost like women are kind of shamed for having the period, which is like the craziest it's, thing. It's the craziest yeah. thing. And I, I mean, testament to women, right? We're really good in showing up and pretending to be fine. Yeah. But isn't it nice if you can just like share and be honest and just like don't be vulnerable. Just all, 
Yeah, it's, I think, I think it's, it must I be hard, especially in a workplace where a workplace environment, as you said, is kind of created by men, right? And so now you're kind of asking, hey, women, why don't you just tell us when you're having your most vulnerable day ever? And it's okay, we'll give you a free day, you know, you can take off yeah. but to stand up and say, hey, I'm having that day, I think requires a lot of confidence and strength. I think I'm curious as to how many women will speak up. I don't know how soon you've, or like when you implemented this, Um, but I'd be curious to find out how it's uh, contributing. I don't know. I don't know for myself if I would ever speak up. I would probably not say anything, to be honest. (laughs) Well, I think it's a sick day, but I wouldn't call it what it, like write it on the wall. You don't have to share it with everyone. It's yeah. it's in a, it's in our HR tool, right? So you can you can you know you can put it in there. Obviously, you have to let you have to let your manager know. And I think that's probably the most important piece. So you don't have to like scream it to sixty people. Mm. Um, but I, I I still believe that we should get to a point where it's normal. And I yeah. have heard that people took it, and you know it, I hear it left and right, and the words even sometimes half a day, and it it it, it seems to work, like. At least in the marketing team, that's where I have the most awareness and like the CX team. Like I, I have to check, I have to double check pilots. I'll check those numbers after this call. But it's, it's really, um, it's just. I mean, yes, it's there's any change. It probably will take time. Where you know, as more and more people start to adopt it, that they're like, oh, okay, this is actually okay to just like share. Yeah. Um, but you have to start somewhere, and I think yes. it's it's just at least recognizing that it's there. Mm-hmm. and trying to start having that conversation and i think just like the days of just putting some tampon somewhere and just like that's it like that's right. not enough that's just not enough anymore yeah well kudos to you for your leadership and trying you know something new to help um build culture and and you know have that conversation i guess you know like kind of bring something to light that's never ever talked about um yeah that's awesome Thank you. So advice for entrepreneurs. Do you have anything, you know, as we kind of sum up everything here, you've already shared so many incredible um, insights and awesome lessons learned. Is there Mm. any kind of final advice you have for aspiring entrepreneurs who will be uh, tuning in? I think, um, I mean, whether it's aspiring or any other entrepreneur, I -hmm. think the biggest thing I've learned is work on yourself and then the business will grow. So it is about investing, whether that's going to different seminars, like I've been to Tony Robbins seminars or just anything that just like makes you grow personally and expand your awareness and just whether it's your empathy, like it's just like just to really just grow as a person, it will help you grow the business. And I think it's very important to recognize that the business you're creating and the problems you're having in the business is a reflection of yourself. It's very easy to always blame everyone else, but it's a reflection of yourself. And you, we are the bottleneck. And the business will only grow as far as we will grow. And I think once you have that awareness, I think you can, you know, the business can grow a lot faster. And um, yeah. yeah, I think it's a really important piece. So how have you grown personally um, as a leader? I... And I, I, I don't even think it's only growing as a leader. I think it's, I think it's growing in, in every way. So mm-hmm. 
Michael and me have done a whole bunch of different things. So we, I mean, like I said, a lot of Tony Robbins seminars, uh, which sounds so standard, but I, I personally like love um, the way he looks at life. So like we actually went to UPW, Date of Destiny. We also did something way more spiritual where we went to a webinar or a seminar from John Wyland, it's actually a relationship seminar. Hmm. And it's, it can, we've worked with coaches um, and yeah, like, a business coach, we've worked with a personal coach, sometimes for shorter periods. And like, I always felt like, oh, I learned what I needed to learn from this person. Mm -hmm. But I really feel the moment we started to invest more in ourselves and to really make sure that we continue to grow, whether that was, you know, even our relationships at well, seminar, like we work together. If our relationship and our communication is better, we're like, the business will probably do better. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was a lot of those things. And it's... um I, I mean, obviously I, li I listen to podcasts. I listen, I, there's, there's a lot of things you can do besides seminars, but I think to just always continuously grow, ex you know, it kind of expand your, I think it's really just expanding your awareness and just like understanding and seeing things from different perspectives. And it doesn't it just has to be business material. It's sometimes the yeah. things that are about like, learn, like one of the things, for example, um, I learned that I think are, is so important is like a lot of people, when I think what they want to do, they think about right away, like the how, like, how do I do this? How do I do this? And they get so stuck in this how, whereas if you do the process, if you start first of your what, what is it that you want? Then the second step is why do you want that? And start listing that out. And then the how is the third step, but it's really just that the how is just the aftermath. The how is just... You know, like you, you can sit down, you come up with like 20 different strategies on how to solve that for, but if you're very clear on what you want and be as specific as possible with timelines, what it is, details, and then, you know, like why you actually want it and list all the reasons why that's important in your life, the house will start to show up. You will figure out a solution. And I think it's just like things like that, that you start to learn and you're like, oh, it's the moments when we, you know... Michael, we get in discussions and we're, and my initial reaction was sometimes like, oh, but what about this, this, and this? And it's the smallest little detail versus just like sticking to the what, right? So there are mm. just like this phase where you, you create an awareness where you're like, actually, we don't have to worry about it right now. If that's really what we want and we think that's the best thing where, you know, where we should move towards to, we'll figure it out. And that's a, a big thing also. We really have a core belief in that everything is everything has a solution everything yep <laughs> there's always an answer or a solution problem solving at its finest that's what entrepreneurs do it's like you know that's yeah. really i think the full-time job <laughs> of <an entrepreneur>. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just putting out fires all the time <laughs> well anyways thank you so much crystal for being on the show today i really appreciate your time um, it was awesome hearing your story. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I, uh, I really enjoyed it. There were some really old stories to dig up where I haven't thought about for a long time. So it was really a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.